Shalom from Jerusalem. This is a Shir Yosefa of Shuvu. Today's class for Noahide Nations is entitled Torah's Authority and Dubious Identities. Bezrat Hashem, the class will be a combination of Torah, rabbinic commentary on our topics, and insights from my own experience as I made my way through the various stages of spiritual evolution that led me to becoming an Orthodox Jew. Now this is not to suggest that people should convert, quite the contrary, but it's to save and to share uh, the experiences and the insights that Hashem gave me as I made my way through many of the same stages that people on their way to becoming B'nai Noach are experiencing at the present time. As I mentioned in our introductory class two months ago, the rabbis have ruled that the Gersedek, the righteous convert, does not have to talk about their past nor is a person to even inquire into their past. Once you enter the mikvah at the end of your conversion process, all your sins are forgiven, and you receive a new neshama, a new soul. You have become a new person, and you are not required to belabor your past. However, for the purposes of reaching out to help others who are presently facing the many issues and wrestling with the many questions that accompany leaving a religion of the nations and desiring to have a righteous relationship with God based on the eternal truth of the Torah, I have found that being able to draw upon my own past experiences enables me to identify with others who are presently on similar journeys. This ability to identify and to relate to the questions, concerns, and challenges in a personal way is a gift that Hashem has allowed me in terms of the work that I do with Admatai and Shuvu as we strive to offer the nations a path to spiritual clarity. Today's class will focus on three areas. First, we will look at a statement made by Moshe Rabbeinu in Devarim 30, verse 14, wherein he said, For the word is very near to you, to carry it out with your mouth and with your heart. Secondly, we'll look at a prophetic blessing that was made by Yaakov when he blessed his sons in Bereshith chapter 49. Bereshith 49.10 states, The scepter shall not turn aside from Yehuda, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him is the obedience of the peoples. And then finally we'll look at the issue of presumed identities that is prevalent amongst many today who feel they may be or are descended from the lost ten tribes of Israel as well as others who feel a strong identification with Torah and Israel, wherein they incorporate many Jewish traditions and customs into their lives. While this may seem desirable and harmless to them, these same people usually do not realize the impact their actions have upon Jews. So let's begin with Moshe's admonition to the children of Israel. Although his statement was specifically addressed to Israel, it has implications for B'nai Noach, those who desire to observe the universal Torah laws. In Devarim chapter 30, verses 11 to 13, Moshe prefaces his statement by saying, For this commandment that I command you today is not beyond your understanding, nor is it far away. It is not in heaven, so that you could say, Who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it to us, and make us hear it so we may carry it out? Neither is it beyond the sea, so that you could say, Who shall go for us to the other side of the sea, and bring it to us, 
and make us hear so that we may carry it out. The previous ten verses of Devarim 30 set forth a prophetic passage in which Moshe tells the children of Israel that after they have experienced both the blessings and the curses itemized in the famous chapters of Devarim 27 and 28 and they come to their spiritual senses in the lands to which they have been exiled as a result of their disobedience to Torah they would repent and seek to return to Hashem. Hashem, in response to their repentance, would turn again in favor towards them, forgive them, and bring them back to their people and their land, even if they were to be found at the end of heaven. Devarim 30, verse 6, tells us that Hashem your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love Hashem your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. The analogy is made to the act of circumcision, a sign of the covenant made between Hashem and Avraham's descendants, in particular the descendants of Yaakov. Circumcision involves the cutting away of a layer of skin, a membrane that covers the head, the crown of the male organ. The heart is actually encased in a sac-like membrane called a cull. In figurative terms, the heart refers to the true essence of a person. Moshe is describing a process by which Hashem will cut away those barriers in our lives that conceal our true essence and prevent us from serving Him wholeheartedly, which of itself is a command in the Torah. Devarim 18 verse 13 You must be wholehearted with Hashem your God. What types of things conceal our true essence and raise up barriers to wholehearted service of Hashem? Pride both human and spiritual, assumed identities, rebellion and disobedience, and generally resisting the authority of Hashem, His Torah, and those to whom He has entrusted His Torah, as we will discuss later in the class. The great Torah commentator, Samson Raphael Hirsch, comments that the Torah, the book of the teaching referred to by Moshe in Devarim 30, is nothing less than the voice of God set down in writing from it, the voice of God speaks to us for all time, teaching us all the tasks and limitations of His commandments and statutes for every aspect of our existence on earth. Rabbi Hirsch goes on to say that the observance of the Torah laws will be the sole aim of Israel in the latter days, purely for the sake of the laws themselves, and not for any aspiration of the blessings and reward that God promises in conjunction with observance of His commandments. Returning to our original, original verse, Devarim 30, verse 14, For the word is very near you, Rashi explains that this refers to both the written and oral Torah. The Hebrew is explicit that the word is not simply near, as in not being afar off in heaven or across the seas, but it is near you. In fact, Rashi translates, as Rather, the matter is very near to you. His commentary on this verse explains that the phrase to you of our verse indicates that near is not meant here in a spatial sense. Rather, near in our verse means that the Torah can be internalized. By means of studying the written and oral Torah, it is in your mouth and heart. As we discussed in detail in our class 7 or 70 last week, 
There are serious precautions and reasons why the Oral Torah is not something that the Nenach should study unless they are being instructed by a learned Orthodox Jewish teacher and seriously and sincerely involved in a conversion program. The written Torah, however, as it relates to the many commandments entailed in full observance of the universal Torah laws, is permitted to Benenach to study, and they are encouraged to do so. The class 7 or 70, the audio file, is available on the Shuvu website at www.shuvu.com. I believe it may be available in the archives on Noahide Nations at their website, www.noahidenations.com. And, God willing, it will be up in a written text form on our Shuvu website by, by the time Shabbat comes in this week. Now, delving deeper into the verse in question, Samson Raphael Hirsch explains as follows, The content and subject matter of these laws are very close to you. You yourself are its subject matter, and its contents concern your own life on earth. In order to understand both, you need only to delve into your own inner self and examine your material and personal position with open eyes. As regards whatever instructions, in addition to those already set down in the book of the law that has been turned over to you, that you may still need in order to understand this law and to observe it, these instructions are being given to you with your mouth, i.e., by the tradition that is to be passed from mouth to mouth. Hirsch then goes on to cross-reference other verses which support the validity, validity and authority of the Oral Torah as the means by which the children of Israel were to understand and apply the Torah to their laws and to their life. This is directly related to Israel's role in the world. Israel was appointed by God to be a nation of priests and witnesses. They were to exemplify God's Torah in their lives, and by so doing to reveal his existence in the world and to proactively teach the universal Torah laws to the nations. Those responsibilities have never changed. In order to do this, Israel has to aspire to and abide by far more stringent observance of the Torah. As Rabbis Klorfin and Rogalski explain in The Path of the Righteous Gentile, the seven universal laws are general commandments each containing many parts and details, whereas the 613 commandments of Torah are specific, each relating to one basic detail of divine law. In addition to the 613 laws of the written Torah, there are volumes of halachot and explanations that are contained in the Mishnah and in the Talmud as a whole that further explain and discuss the true significance and proper application of the Torah commandments. This demonstrates why Torah can only truly be taught by those to whom it was entrusted. The further evidence that Samson Raphael Hirsch brings in his defense of the importance of the oral Torah are as follows. Shemot 34, verse 27. Hashem said to Moshe, Write down these words for yourself, for according to the living content of these words have I made a covenant with you and with Israel. Rabbi Hirsch states that the words, the living content of these words, is a direct reference to the oral tradition that was to be passed verbally from generation to generation as a living oracle. Devarim 31 verse 19, where Moshe gives over his epic song before his death, reads, 
And now write down for yourselves the words of this song, and teach it to the sons of Israel. Put it in their mouth, so that this song may become a witness for me against the sons of Israel. Rabbi Hirsch explains that this verse, according to Nadarim 38a, applies not only to the Song of Moshe, but to all of the Torah. For as was explained by Rabbeinu Nisim ben Ruvain Garondi, who lived between 1308 and 1376, if the command were indeed applicable only to the song, it would not be much of a witness. All that the song does is perpetuate, in general terms, our awareness that our woe and weal depend on whether we perform the task God has assigned to us. But we will be able to understand the character of our task only if we are familiar with the entire law. Turning to Sefer Yehoshua, the book of Joshua, Hashem commands Yehoshua as follows, This book of the teaching shall not depart from your mouth. Yehoshua 1 verse 8 The prophet Isaiah was inspired by Hashem to tell Israel, And my words which I have put in your mouth. Yeshua 58 verse 21 in each of these four examples from Tanakh, we find direct reference to the Torah of Hashem being an oral transmission. Rabbi Hirsch explains, All this you must study and grasp it with your heart and spirit in order to carry it out. To learn the book of God's law in the light of the oral tradition with heart and mind, understand our duty and fulfill it, that is the only path to the understanding of the law of God close to us at all times, wherever we may be, so that it may cause us to comprehend our eternal mission on earth. Rabbi Hirsch is speaking to Israel, to Jews. We have already discussed the reasons why study of the oral Torah is not permitted to non-Jews. The eternal mission referenced to Rabbi Hirsch is twofold. The legal obligation, by virtue of the covenant at Sinai, that is incumbent upon every Jew, to observe all of the laws of the Torah, and the commandment given by God to Moshe, as expressed in the Oral Torah, that Israel is to teach to the nations of the world the universal Torah laws that are represented by the seven commandments given to Noach. Similarly, it is incumbent upon every non-Jew to learn and to observe these seven laws. Through the observance of the seven laws and all the many other commandments contained within them, B'nai Noach connect with the eternal light of Hashem and fulfill the purpose of their creation, receiving a share in the world to come. As explained by Rabbis Chlorophyne and Hrogalski, therefore the numerical disparity between the seven laws of Noach and the 16, 613 laws of Torah in no way reflects the relative spiritual worth of the two systems of commandments. There is a mutually complementary difference between a Jew's service of God and a Noahite's. Through the observance of the seven universal laws, B'nai Noach refined the world. Through the observance of the 613 commandments, Jews reveal God's presence in the world. Reciprocally, refining the world reveals its inherent godliness, and revealing godliness refines the world. Through the observance of the universal Torah laws, the word in the will of Hashem is very near to anyone from among the nations. As with the children of Israel, it is to be carried out with your mouth by proclaiming it and teaching the universal laws to others, especially your children, and it is to be carried out wholeheartedly 
with the circumcision of the heart that removes barriers of pride, rebellion, and resistance to authority. Nowhere in the Torah are we told that this will be an easy task. To the contrary, the recorded example of the history of the children of Israel shows that it is not an easy task. We also studied Hashgaha Pratis, Divine Providence, a few weeks ago, and saw the role that Divine Providence plays in allowing both good and bad in our lives in order to help us achieve the ultimate reward of desiring to cleave unto our Creator and receive of His goodness to the maximum level possible. Moshe Rabbeinu explained one of the primary purposes of difficulties in life when he told the children of Israel, as they prepared to enter the land of Canaan, Remember the entire path along which Hashem your God has led you these forty years in the wilderness, in order to have you come to know what is in your heart, whether you will keep His commandments or not. Devarim 8 verse 2 Now let's turn our attention to our next topic. The prophetic blessing conferred upon Yehuda and his descendants just before Yaakov Avinu was gathered to his ancestors. Bereshith 49 verse 10 The scepter shall not turn aside from Yehuda, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him is the obedience of the peoples. This is probably one of the most common translations into English of Bereshith 49.10. But there are some Hebrew idioms in the verse which need to be explained, such as Shevet, or Shevet, which is scepter, Hukech, lawgiver, and the expression between his feet, Bene Raglecha. Obviously, we will also explore the various translations of the word Shiloh which Christianity has interpreted as referring to their Messiah. The Hebrew word Shevet, translated scepter, is without question a reference to authority. Sovereigns wield scepters as a symbol of their rule and authority. This is an indication of kings to be descended from Yehuda, as history bears record with kings David and Shlomo and their descendants. Rashi explains that Yaakov is not saying that rulership would never depart from Yehuda from that moment on. The children of Israel lived in the land for centuries before Shaul of the tribe of Binyamin was anointed as the first king. However, Rashi points out that the intent of this prophecy is that from King David onward, as long as there will be temporal authority among the Jewish people, the authority will be in the hands of the tribe of Judah. Rashi, referencing Gur'arie as his source, points out that even during the period when the Hashmoneans ruled, who were Kohanim of the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Yehuda was still recognized as the tribe of permanent rulership. The most common English translations of the Hebrew word Hokek are lawgiver, rod, ruler, staff. Rashi notes that lawgiver or ruler's staff indicates a lesser form of authority than that of Shevet, which has the connotation of a sovereignty in this blessing upon Yehuda. Sanhedrin 5a explains that lawgiver implies a person in a position of authority, one who issues edicts, but who is in a lesser position of authority than that implied by Shevet or scepter. Mibain Raglecha which translates into English as from between his feet or from between his legs, 
is a Hebraic idiom referring to physical descendants. Rashi explains, Judah will have descendants who will teach Torah to the students who will sit at their feet. It's simply saying that the descendants of Yehuda would be teachers and interpreters of the Torah, that they would have the rod, which indicates the authority, and the descendants who would carry it out. Shiloh is an interesting word, which must be carefully examined. Shiloh is obviously the name of a place in the Shomron. It is the place where the Mishkan, the tabernacle, stood for 369 years. And it's very close to the boundary between the tribal applications between Binyamin and Ephraim. A few translators see it as a poetic form of the word Shalom, peace. Other commentators consider it to be the name or title of a person. Tractate Sanhedrin 98b discusses Shiloh as a name for Messiah, as to Barashis Rabbah 98.8 and 99.8. Rashi concurs with this opinion. However, as he points out, one must understand how this interpretation is arrived at. Shiloh is seen as a form of Shiloh, which is the Hebrew pronoun for his. In most modern versions of Tanakh, Shiloh is written Shin Yud Lamed He. However, in the older Jewish versions, it is written without the Yud, simply Shin Lamed He, which is the archaic form of the pronoun his. Commentators of the Septuagint, Targum, Sadia, and Rashi, all agree that this is the case. Rashi's commentary on this verse explains. Shiloh is seen as a form of Shiloh, his. The verse indicates that the kingship, which is represented by the scepter, will remain with Judah until the one to whom the scepter belongs will appear. Hence the reference to Messiah. Rashi quotes numerous sources which concur with his interpretation. J. H. Hertz, the former chief rabbi of the British Empire, in his commentary on the Pentateuch and the Haftoraz, notes that the phrase in which the word Shiloh appears, Ad Kiyavo Shiloh, is very difficult to explain. Hertz is of the opinion that the simple translation, until Shiloh comes, is best rendered, until that which is his shall come, meaning Judah's rule shall continue till he comes to his own, and the obedience of all the tribes is his. Hertz also explains that the phrase could mean when the tribe of Judah has come into its own, the scepter shall be taken out of its hands. It is clear from Tanakh that Judah will not come into its own and assume its full role in relation to the world until Moshiach comes and the descendant of Judah and King David ushers in the redemption of Israel and the nations, assuming his role as Hashem's anointed, the leader of the world throughout the Messianic era. From this it is clear that Judah's descendants, namely the Jewish nation, still have the two divinely ordained roles of sovereignty, as represented by the scepter, and law-giving and teaching authority, as represented by the rod, or lawgiver. The law being referred to is, of course, Torah. This role has not been suspended or transferred to another, as has recently been taught within certain lost tribes congregations, where their leaders have claimed that the lawgiver's rod passed to God after the crucifixion of the Christian Messiah. 
I would like to take some time to clarify this error that is prevalent in teaching among Ephraimite and other lost tribes groups in the West. I was in the audience the first time this teaching was presented. So it is of particular importance to me that I make a sincere effort to explain the proper interpretation of Torah in this matter. This faulty teaching is based on Devarim 33 verses 20 to 21. I will explain who the pronouns in the verses are referring to by reading the verse a second time. The verse reads, Of God he said, Blessed is he who broadens God. He dwells like a lion. He will tear off an arm as well as a head. He saw the beginning for himself. For there is the hidden plot of the lawgiver. And he came at the heads of the people. He carried out the righteousness of Hashem and his ordinances with Israel. Devarim 33 verses 20 to 21. Now let's look at it again because from the Hebrew you know who the pronouns are referring to by the form of the Hebrew. This is what the verse is saying. Of God Moshe said, Blessed is Hashem who broadens God. God dwells like a lion. God will tear off an arm as well as a head. God saw the beginning for himself for there is the hidden plot of the lawgiver. And God came at the heads of the people. God carried out the righteousness of Hashem and God's ordinances with Israel. According to Rashi, these verses are prophecies of God's decision prior to entering the Promised Land that they wished to settle on the other side of the Jordan in the verdant pasture lands of Bashan. The men of God were herdsmen. The abundant vegetation of Bashan appealed to them. The tribe of Ruvain and half the tribe of Manasseh decided to join them. Moshe was not pleased with their decision and consented to it only on the condition that these tribes would go with the rest of the tribes as they entered into and took possession of Canaan. And once conquest of the land was secure, then and only then were they to return to their families and herds settled on the other side of the Jordan. Now let's analyze these verses. He who broadens Gad is a reference to Hashem's blessing upon God in that over time the tribe of God continued to expand their territory in the area of Bashan. According to Rashi, the phrase he who dwells like a lion refers to God's need to be mighty in battle because of his decision to dwell adjacent to but outside the boundaries of his countrymen. God would need to be lion-like in defending his borders. This phrase has been erroneously interpreted by Rod to God adherents as suggesting that where Yehuda was likened to a crouching lion in Barashith 49 verse 9, immediately prior to the scepter and rod prophecy, this reference to God suggests that Yehuda's Torah authority has passed to God. He will tear off an arm as well as a head is interpreted by Rashi to refer to the manner in which God would defeat adversaries who contested their occupancy of Bashan. It does not imply a future dismantling of Torah authority as has been suggested by the Rod to God proponents. According to Rashi and other commentators, the phrase, he saw the beginning for himself, refers to the fact that the tribe of God saw their opportunity to avail themselves of the rich pasture lands of Sichon and Og. Their conquest of land on the other side of the Jordan was the beginning of Israel's conquest of the Promised Land. It was the first conquest. 
It does not refer to a new beginning or any change in God's mind with respect to where sovereignty and Torah authority vest within the people and nation of Israel. The phrase, for there is the hidden plot of the lawgiver. Now this is the part of these verses that has really been misinterpreted by the Rod to Gad teachers. According to their interpretation, these words imply a concealed manner, matter within the Torah wherein Yehuda's prophetic appointment as the tribe of Torah authority and interpretation would be set aside in the future in favor of God's descendants. Firstly, God's descendants are a little difficult to identify given that they, together with the other nine tribes of the northern kingdom, were exiled into Assyria and the nations of their subsequent migrations with such totality that the prophet Hosea would declare that they had been swallowed up. Hosea 8.8 More importantly, however, is their total misinterpretation of the words hidden plot and lawgiver. In the context of this passage in the Torah, Lawgiver is not referring back to the blessing conferred in Barashith 49.10. Lawgiver, in the context of Devarim 33, verse 21 and 22, is referring to the greatest lawgiver that Israel has ever known, none other than Moshe Rabbeinu, to whom the Torah of Hashem was given, and who in turn taught it to the children of Israel, and inscribed the written Torah for all generations to come. Hidden plot does not refer to a concealed agenda. One must always remember that symbolic interpretations of Torah must never set aside the Peshat or literal context of the verse or passage. The hidden plot being referred to here is the burial place of Moshe, which is hidden on Mount Nebo, which just happens to be located in the lands of Sichon and Og, in which Gad conquered and settled. To finish off our examination of these two verses, let's look at the phrase, He came at the heads of his people. This refers to the fact that the tribe of Gad led the vanguard in the conquest of the land of Israel. The phrase, He carried out the righteousness of Hashem and his ordinances with Israel, explains that Gad fulfilled their words and kept their promise to battle in unity with the rest of Israel until they had conquered the land. This does not imply that the descendants of God would assume Torah authority in place of Yehuda. The ordinances being referred to are God's ordinances with Israel, the commitment he made to his countrymen and to Hashem that he would be engaged in the battle to conquer Eretz Israel. If you would like to review what we've just covered, this class will be posted in the audio section of our Shubu website, www.shuvoo.com, before Shabbat begins, Belineder. The reason that I have taken so much time to study Barashith 49 verse 10 and the blessing upon Yehuda and to correct the Rod to God teachings is best explained in the words of Rabbis Chaim Chlorfin and Yaakov Rogalski in their book, The Path of the Righteous Gentile. They write, The hurdle that must be cleared away in preparation for observing the seven Noahide commandments is the acceptance of the idea that mankind's way to the Father is through the rabbis. 
rebellion against the sanctity of rabbinic authority and tradition has been with us since those first days in the wilderness of Sinai when the followers of Korach led a revolt against absolute rabbinic authority, as we learn in the Torah. And they assembled themselves against Moshe and against Aharon and said to them, You assume too much, for the whole of the congregation are all holy, and Hashem is among them. Wherefore then will you lift yourselves up above the congregation of Hashem? Bemidbar 16, verse 3. The assumption referred to by Rabbis Klorfein and Rogalski is not unique to Israel. The nations, particularly within Christianity and the various messianic movements, also reject and rebel against the authority of the rabbis to interpret and issue edicts concerning proper observance of the Torah. The Karaites, a sect within Judaism that rejects the Oral Torah and Rabbinic authority, has had a significant influence in recent years on the Messianic movements, particularly the Ephraimite movement. Man, by nature, since Gan Eden, has struggled to accept authority. Rabbis Klorfin and Rogalski note, When God gave the Torah to the Jewish people on Mount Sinai, the people all accepted the written Torah willingly. But God had to lift the mountain over their heads and threaten to drop it on them to persuade them to accept the oral Torah. Babylonian Talmud, Tractate Shabbat 88a. That is, the rabbinic interpretation of the Hebrew Scriptures. If the Jews had difficulty in accepting the oral Torah, how much more difficult must it be for non-Jews? But accept it, and accept the rabbis they must. For the source of understanding the seven Noahide commandments is found in the Talmud and the later rabbinic teachings and nowhere else. As we have clearly seen in our examination of Yaakov's blessing upon Yehuda in Bereshith 49.10, the descendants of Yehuda, the Jews, have a unique and specific responsibility to interpret and to teach Torah. They are the guardians appointed by God to guard the Torah. And had they not done through had our people not done through through the centuries, the Torah uh, would not exist in the form it does today. There have been too many, too many attempts by other religions to discredit it and to get rid of it. Now, one might argue that not all rabbis today are of the tribe of Judah. This is true. But Judah became the dominant tribe into which all other tribes merged if they chose to align themselves with the Torah and remain within the nation and the people of Israel. The northern kingdom, the house of Israel, was exiled and for all intents and purposes disappeared for centuries. In recent years, various people groups have been identified as their probable descendants, but a conclusive identification has not been fully and authoritatively confirmed, and it cannot be until Mashiach is here, because only Mashiach with the assistance of Eliyahu Hanavi, will be able to decisively identify the true origin of an individual's soul. The southern kingdom of Judah returned from their exile in Babylon, rebuilt the temple, and resettled in the land of Israel. From that point on, the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, have been identified as Jews, whether the term is etymologically precise or not. It is clear from Tanakh that a number, not all, but a small percentage of the exiles from the northern kingdom, the house of Israel, did return to Israel together with the Jews when they returned from Babylon. Therefore, Jews are a mixture of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and smatterings of all the other tribes. 
Concise proof of tribal identity is almost impossible today, with the exception of some of the Kohanim and Leva'im. It is also clear from Tanakh that Hashem promises that the exiled descendants of the lost ten tribes will be awakened by Him, gathered from their lands of exile, and brought back to Torah and to the land of Israel. It is also clear from the Tanakh and from the rabbinic writings that this ingathering is one of the primary roles of Mashiach, so we will not see its fulfillment until Mashiach's arrival on the scene. It doesn't mean that it hasn't already begun to play out, but it will not be fully realized until Mashiach is here. The best we can do today is to acknowledge the reality of history as Hashem has allowed it to unfold. Recognize that Jews have a unique and specific role in relation to Torah, and accept that the rabbis have an equally specific responsibility to interpret as best they can and teach the Torah that they accept when they are ordained. Now, not every rabbi today is a direct descendant of Yehuda, but they have united with the tribe of Yehuda and are identified with them, and they spend years studying the Torah diligently. It takes ten years to get smicha, rabbinic ordination. Until such time as Mashiach is here and clarifies true tribal descent, anyone who wishes to be identified as part of the people of Israel must accept the yoke of both written and oral Torah, submit to the authority of the rabbis, and undergo a sincere orthodox conversion in Mechvah in order to unite with the present-day people of Israel, the Jews. Any other teaching to the contrary is misleading and harmful. I want to share Samson Raphael Hirsch's translation or transliteration of Bereshith 49 verse 10 and read you a portion of his commentary on this verse. The scepter will not depart from Yehuda, nor the law inscribing stylus from between his feet until his sprout, seemingly the last in week, will come and then it will be to him the one of manly strength, that the nations, dulled with age, will fall. Hirsch's commentary on the phrase Ad Kiyavo Shilo, which he translates as Until his sprout, seemingly the last and weak, shall come, goes as follows. Here we see Jacob, lying upon his deathbed at the time of the nation's early beginnings, when the cornerstone for that nation had barely been laid, looking down through the ages, contemplating the ultimate Sion of the tribe of Judah. By referring to this last generation as Shiloh, Jacob means to say, the time will come when the kingdom of the house of David will be seen at its nadir, when Judah will appear not as an Ari, not as a lion, but effeminately weak, so that it will look as if he were about to draw his last breath. Judah's might and virility will have virtually vanished, but just at this point, when the gravediggers of world history will already have ordered a coffin to enclose Judah's remains, lo yekahatamim, he will rise again in manly strength, and the peoples, dulled with age, will fall to him. Regarding the words, yekahatamim, Rabbi Hirsch explains, the time will come when the Jewish spirit will appear close to death. At that point, mankind, grown old and dull, having tested and experienced everything else, will sense that the time has come for a new reviving spirit. And it is this renewed spirit, 
which will be borne by the ultimate Sion of Judah, who is, of course, Mashiach. With all that is happening politically and spiritually in Eretz Israel and the world, Samson Raphael Hirsch's words give one significant food for thought if you take the time to consider them. Again, if you would like to go back over this class, it will be up on our Shuvah website, God willing, before Shabbat begins, uh, at www.shuvoo.com. There are also a number of verses in the books of the prophets that might lead us to think that this renewed spirit spoken of by Rabbi Hirsch is beginning to exert its influence in the world. Zechariah 8, verses 20 to 23. Thus said Hashem of hosts, Peoples shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities, and the inhabitants of the one go to another, saying, Let us earnestly go and pray before Hashem, and seek Hashem of hosts. I myself am going. And many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek Hashem of hosts in Yerushalayim, and to pray before Hashem. Thus said Hashem of hosts, In those days ten men from all languages of the nations take hold, Yea, they shall take hold of the edge of the garment of a man, a Yehudite, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. And again, by the prophet Isaiah in Yeshayahu 14.1, Because Hashem has compassion on Yaakov, and shall again, shall again choose Israel, and give them rest in their own land, and the strangers shall join them, and they shall cling to the house of Yaakov. From these verses it is clear that the prophetic blessing given by Yaakov to Yehuda has not been transferred to the tribe of God or in any other manner changed or lifted. Now, for the final topic in today's class. Presumed identities and identity theft. By presumed identities, I am referring to the tendency of sincere, well-intentioned people in the Lost Tribes movements to claim irrefutably that they know that they are without doubt descendants of the lost ten tribes of Israel and that the, predisp and the predisposition of some to take upon themselves specific tribal identifications such as Naphtali, Ruvain, even Levi. By identity theft, I am referring to the widely prevalent practice among non-Jews who are hungry for the Torah and who feel drawn to Israel and the Jewish people to incorporate within their lives many of the Jewish traditions that are intended in Torah and by Halakha to specifically set apart and identify Jews as Jews. For example, the wearing of kippot, the laying of tefillin, and the use of a talus or prayer shawl. With the most sincere of intentions, these individuals, out of their desire to live according to Torah, emulate Jewish appearance and identity. They all claim to love Jews and love and support Israel. But what they do not realize is that their efforts at identification and alliance are usually perceived as a form of identity theft, which is often found offensive. Let us first address self-identification as descendants of the lost tribes and or a specific tribe. As I explained, until the time that Mashiach is with us and his identity has been confirmed, no one, not even most Jews, can say with absolute certainty which of the tribes of Israel they are or not descended from. Only the Chochanim 
and some of the Levi'im can do this. To assume otherwise and to state it verbally or in writing is risking sheker, falsehood, and perhaps even lashon hara, evil speech, because you are assuming someone else's identity and you are doing it erroneously. And if you do so, you are de facto stealing someone's identity. To transgress either one of these prohibitions is to rebel against the authority of Hashem and His Torah. This is the plain, simple, and concise truth of the matter. One might feel it in their bones or in their heart of hearts that they are descended from the lost ten tribes or from Judah. But without clear genealogical evidence, one simply cannot defend their position to others. And in the absence of proof, they truly are risking putting themselves in danger of transgressing the Torah prohibitions against lying and Lashon Hara. The present-day stirrings within non-Jewish souls to learn about Torah, to embrace the universal Torah laws, to forsake paganism and idolatry, these things warm the heart of most Jews and bring expressions of sincere awe and respect. Conversely, for some Jews, Given the sordid history of Christianity's interaction with Jews, they are unnerved and even alarmed by the present interest of the nations in Torah. Whether Jews respond with awe or with concern, the statement by a non-Jew, I know I am an Israelite, descended from the last ten tribes, because I feel it inside, simply does not make the grade. To take this claim a step further, and identify actual tribal descent, to say that you're from the tribe of God, Asher, Naphtali. Well, let's just say that an already tenuous case is simply made all the more incredulous. As explained previously, most Jews would not make such a claim. Aside from Kohanim and Levites, when a Jewish man is called to the Torah, he is called simply as an Israelite there is no specific tribal identification. Without having factual proof or some form of authoritative recognition, anyone making such statements at the present time is dancing dangerously close to falsehood, as I have already explained. Despite all the wonderful and varied research regarding the lost tribes that is available today, concrete proof does not yet exist. For anyone who feels they might be a descendant of the lost tribes, when Mashiach comes, they and everyone else will know for sure. State it conclusively, in the interim, no matter how strongly they identify with Israel or with Jews, it would be advisable to consider Torah's command to speak truth, which it applies to all mankind. There is nothing wrong with erring on the side of caution. For a more detailed study into this area, I would refer you to my article entitled Claiming Israelite Descent, in the article section of our Shuvu website at www.shuvoo.com. Identity theft. Identity theft with respect to Jews is actually more than simply imitating Jewish traditions and wearing specific items of clothing that have long been identified by the world as solely the domain of Jews. Replacement theology is actually a theft of spiritual identity. It is fraudulent misrepresentation in their sincere but misguided attempts to draw near and emulate the Jews. Some non-Jews are dressing like Jews, 
wearing kippot, head coverings, tzitziot, and prayer shells. They are adopting, adopting Jewish prayers and worship traditions without rabbinic guidance as to whether their new practice is permissible or needs some adaptation in order to be used by the nations. Not knowing the full significance of what they're doing or saying, they can easily offer inappropriate prayers or engage in religious practices that have specific spiritual implications only for the children of Israel, such as the laying of tefillin. Without proper instruction, these non-Jews are taking upon themselves to observe other Torah commandments that are specific to Jews alone, including those unique to Kohanim and Leviim, commandments that the remainder of Jews simply do not do. This can be dangerous in the long run spiritually. The intentions of these people are usually good. A desire to return to God, to live according to Torah, and to identify with the history and plight of God's chosen people. But remember, a stark reality is being overlooked. Israel, the Jews, were chosen in order to be a witness of God's presence in the world and to teach the universal Torah laws to the nations. In the eyes and the understanding of most Jews, non-Jewish people who are wooing them for the reconciliation and recognition but are dressing like Jews and acting like Jews are stealing their religious identity, an identity that has been preserved throughout the centuries at tremendous personal cost, sacrifice and loss of life. If you think back to the time of the pogroms in Europe, the time of the Crusades, the time of the Inquisition, the items of clothing, the way of life that identified our people as Jews also identified us as targets for much persecution and even death. Religious movements who engage in these practices may not realize it, but they are consciously or unconsciously shaping themselves into another form of replacement theology. They may not be stating verbatim that they are the spiritual Israel such as has been done in some Christian denominations, that Israel has been set aside and that they've been replaced by a new spiritual Israel. But when these movements begin to take on and claim that they are, without hesitation, that they are descendants of the lost tribes, that they are from a specific tribe, that they and take on the very items that have identified Jews as Jews, it makes most Jews very nervous. And you're replacing your own identity with someone else. And until your identity can be proven, that's identity theft. If somebody wants to truly believe they're part of the Jewish people, part of Am Israel, and truly wants to join the past, present, and future of the Jewish people, there has always been an open door through sincere orthodox conversion. What many of these people in the Lost Tribes movements do not realize is that their activities are regarded by many Jews as being more insidious and more dangerous than any of their predecessors in forms of replacement theology. And the tragic thing, the dichotomy is, is that most of these people are doing this 
because they want to be recognized, they want to be accepted, they want to extend an olive branch of reconciliation, and they actually are doing the opposite. It's not true for all Jews, but it is true for many. I must say at this point, before we end the class, that I do not make these comments from a spiritual pedestal. I am an Orthodox Jew, but I was not always an Orthodox Jew. I was once a spiritual leader in a Lost Tribes movement that spans the globe and is filled with hundreds of thousands of sincere people, earnestly desiring to live life according to Torah and to befriend and defriend, defend Jews and Israel. They do so for hope of some acknowledgement that their claims of Israelite descent are being considered and confirmed. They yearn for recognition and they emulate so very many of the Jewish traditions and worship practices I've just spoken of. In some of their services, if you didn't know better, you would think that you were in an Orthodox shul. I know these things because in the past I did likewise. In the process of becoming a Jew, I realized, often painfully, how misguided my actions were and how much I had to unlearn in order to be properly grounded in Torah. I had no idea that my past actions had caused offense. I thought I was simply coming alongside of Jews in a display of respect and solidarity and reconciliation. I was wrong, and I had to do tshuva. It is from this vantage point that I share the thoughts I have given over today in this class. Hashem is doing an amazing thing among the nations of the world, opening eyes that have been blinded to idolatry and paganism and freeing minds to embrace the eternality of Torah. These are incredible days in which to be alive. They are not easy days, but they are days full of promise that the messianic era cannot be too far off. If we heed Hashem's call to return in obedience to our respective roles as Jews and Gentiles, as Israel and the nations of mankind, these two distinct roles are mutually complementary if we understand our respective missions. There is no spiritual inequality or rivalry between Jews and B'nai Noach. We simply have different jobs to do. Please God, may we learn to do them well. Rabbi Yul Schwartz, who is the Av Beit Din for B'nai Noach on the Sanhedrin, was telling me back in November that there's a portion in the Zohar that speaks specifically, prophetically, about a time near the coming of Mashiach when there would be a war in Iraq. That there would be no victor in that war. That it would go on and on. But that at that time, throughout the world, there would be a resurgence of B'nai Noach. And the nations would be quickened and come to observe the seven universal laws. We are seeing that prophecy play out in our days and it is one of the primary signs that the messianic era is not far off. Please God may we merit to see it in our time. Okay, this is it for this week's class. 
again for those who came in late the class will be hopefully later tonight uh, it will be replayed at 8 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time on this website um, on Virtual Yeshiva in the NOAA chat room so you can hear the whole class then it will also be up probably within about four hours or so but definitely by Friday morning on the Shuva website in the audio section www.shuvu.com so that you can re-listen to it uh, I see some questions coming up as Riala says does the prophecy that ten men of all nations will catch a Yahudi to follow him what that there's different translations I'm not quite certain what you mean uh, Azriella, uh, Andy, I will answer your question, um, and I will take whatever questions you want to put up there. Whoa, <laughs> okay, the questions are starting to go off the board, so let's just let's just start from the top and go down. Andy, you ask, is the Lost Tribes movement the Messianic Jew? No, although there are Messianic Jews within it. Uh, the Lost Tribes movement is called to house movement in some areas. Ephraimite movement, Yosephite movement. In South Africa, it's called Ten Israel. Uh, most of the people are non-Jews, but a lot of the leaders are Messianic Jews. So it's a blending of both. That's why they call it Two House. Azriella, um, I'm still not quite certain. Has the prophecy been realized uh, that ten men of all nations will catch a Yehudi? Okay, there, there's some things here. Let me explain on this. Azriella says, there is a prophecy that says that ten men of each nation will catch, will ask to a Jewish person to follow him. Has it been realized? We're seeing it happen. Let me explain this. Okay, ten is a number that indicates, as we spoke in last week's class, it means completion. It means wholeness. And we're told that, that men from every nation and language, every tribe and tongue. So that indicates throughout the world these peoples are going to come to Jerusalem, they're going to come to seek Hashem, they're going to pray to Hashem, which is what we see if you go down to the, the Western Wall, to the Kotel. We see people from the nations there in huge numbers seeking Hashem, praying. So we see that the nations are coming, the nations are coming here to be taught, more and more with the non-Jewish groups that come in, they want Jewish teachers to teach them. The rabbis are getting lots of requests to teach these Torah groups. They're also having a lot of non-Jews on their websites. Ten men from each nation. It says that the ten men uh, from all the nations. It means a completeness within the nations will take hold. Now, some interpretations that said will take hold of Jews in general. Some say they will take hold specifically of a Jew. There's a sense of, you know, it will be like 10 to 1, that, that each Jew will have, you know, up to 10 people coming to them and saying, we've heard God is with you. Um, we want to learn from you. Please, please let us learn from you because we've heard God is with you. Yes, we are seeing this come to pass, it appears, uh, very definitely. And as well... Um, my thought left me, sorry, but perhaps it will come back. Are there any other questions? I will also say, remember, that this uh, sense of the nations coming and say, we've, we've heard that God is with you, you know, let us go with you, it doesn't mean conversion to Judaism. It means, remember, Abraham 
started this whole thing. And Abraham was the first convert. And he converted thousands and thousands and thousands of people to ethical monotheism. Abraham followed the seven universal laws. Call them the laws of Noah. Call, I mean, they were. that's what Adam was given to follow too, at least six of them. So these laws have been around. They're universal. And as we've explained over this series of classes, these laws are general categories. Each one of them has so many commandments within it. But you have to sort of start with the seven basic building blocks. And that's what this is all about. That the nations have seven basic categories of law that they need to follow, that they're accountable for whether they realize it or not. And so part of the nations coming and taking hold of the corner of the garment of the Jew and saying, let us go with you, we've heard God is with you, is the fulfillment of the role of Jews as a nation to teach the universal Torah laws to the nations. It doesn't mean that the nations all have to become Jews, quite the contrary. The Jews have a specific role to be witnesses and teachers of the Noahide laws. That is our role, and it has been a difficult role throughout history, as our history indicates. Our history indicates what happens when you obey God's Torah and what happens when you don't, uh, in vivid, vivid color throughout history. Now, as Riala says, some Jewish persons say that if the nations have only seven laws, it is because they're not capable to follow the 613. That is not true. Um, some people may... The seven... Remember, as I've explained in other classes, when Jews were in Galut, when they were in exile, in other lands, those lands had their own religions. It was hard enough being a Jew in those lands until recent years. And so it was not possible to proactively teach the Noahide laws because if we had, the persecution would have been all the greater. But now that most Jews, or at least half of Jews in the world, not most, but half, are back in Eretz Israel, now it truly is incumbent upon us to teach these lands, and especially from Israel, to, to be a light unto the nations from Israel and to teach those lands those laws. The seven laws, as Rabbis Klorfina Rogalski explain in their book, The Path of the Righteous Gentile, there is no inequality between the seven laws of Noah and the 613 laws of Torah. The seven laws are general categories. Every one of the seven laws has many details, many other commandments that apply to it. The 613 commandments each one is specific to one detail of the Torah law. Now, as we've explained in the classes, there are some laws that non-Jews can't keep. And actually, truthfully, there's some of the 613 that ordinary Jews can't keep. We can't keep, a woman cannot keep the commandments for men, nor men for women. Someone who is not a Kohen can't keep the laws specifically to the Kohanim and the Levi'im, especially those that pertain to the temple service. And right now, without the Beit HaMikdash, the Kohanim and the Levi'im can't keep those either. So it's not that there's inequality. It's not that the nations are not capable. It's just that in the specific role that the children of Israel were given, 
to to really live the Torah, to exemplify God's presence in the world by their lives, the teacher always has to uh, walk the walk. The teacher has to really give a good example. And so for that reason, there are some laws that are specific, some commandments that specifically identify us as Jews to stick out. The rabbis on the Beit Din of the Sanhedrin for Bnei Noach now say that the Bnei Noach can keep almost all of the Torah, that the, that the proper observance of the seven laws encompasses all of the laws of justice, all of the laws of, of social equality, all of the laws of mercy and compassion, laws of purity. Even last week we discussed kashrut. Remember I mentioned that the rabbis are concerned for B'nai Nach in America because the manner in which meat is stunned before it is butchered in North America, very often the animal might not have been completely killed before they are actually cut up. And one of the prohibitions of the seven Noahide laws is that a Ben Noach, a Ben Noach, cannot eat the limb of a living animal. And so the rabbis are very concerned that in some cases, unknowingly, uh, Ben Noach might be pro, you know, transgressing the prohibition. They don't know. So unless they eat meat that is kosher, that has been shechted, they don't really know. They can't be certain. So the kashrut laws start to come into play. Remember that the Noahide laws have been pretty much in obscurity for 2,000 years. It's only been in the last decade, and even more so in the last few years, that Hashem has quickened the Rabbeim, that He's quickened the nations. It Now is the time. And as a response to that, there is a, I can t only tell you that here in Israel, what I've seen in the last three years, the increase in the numbers of the Rabbeim who are now studying and learning about the Noahide laws, the diligence of the Rebbeim on the Sanhedrin, on the Beit Din for B'nai Noach, in studying these laws, in revisiting exactly what a B'nai Noach, what Ben or Bet Noach can do, what halakha apply to them, their concern that, that the halakha allow B'nai Noach to have a rich and full spirituality, these things are growing. And, and it's so full of promise. And really, it, it is a it is a definite move of Hashem, and I think we should be very encouraged. Any other questions? While you're thinking about that, um, next week's class will be on Thursday, June twelfth, ten a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, uh, God willing. It will be on spiritual pride. And spiritual mixtures, the legacy of Yalbam. We'll talk about uh, lingering legacies and attitudes that affect our learning. We'll talk about uh, a concept that Rabbi Nachman of Breslov taught: the less one knows, the closer you are. That seems contradictory, but we'll explore what he meant. Uh, in essence, he said that when we think we're really close to Hashem. Usually it's when we're the furthest away. And we'll talk about spiritual mixtures uh, and how the, the Tanakh uh, warns us not to do that. Okay, as Rila says, 
But please, Ashira, if you decided to become a Jewish woman, was it that the laws were not enough for you? That wasn't the case at all, um, Asriella. In fact, in that journey, I, I actually didn't consider the Noahide laws. I just, it was, I was keeping the Torah. It was about a seven-year journey. I was teaching, remember, I was an ordained leader of this Lost Tribes movement. And in it, we, you know, we were doing all the things I just warned you about in this class, and we were claiming to be descendants of Israel, and we were trying to live according to the Torah. But as I studied, the more I studied, the more I saw the errors in, in my ways. And it wasn't very long before I realized um, that you know a man cannot be God, and that uh, Messiah has not come. And you know I I had a congregation, and I traveled all over North America teaching, and I had written books, uh, which of course I canceled publication of. But I had a huge responsibility because I realized that I taught wrong. Um, Azrael says, "Are you talking of Christians?" This group. Uh, this Lost Tribes group contains people who are Christian in doctrine, okay? It's a mixed group. There are people who are Christian in doctrine but will argue that they are not because they don't keep Christmas, they don't keep Easter, um, they, they keep the Jewish holy days, they try to live according to the Torah. But basically they believe that, that Jesus is God and Messiah. There are thousands within their congregations that don't believe that Jesus is God but they still think he's Messiah. And there are thousands more who, it's like stages of, of spiritual growth, the more they study the Torah and the Tanakh, there are thousands more that no longer believe him to be either God or Messiah. Uh, they might think of him as a teacher or a prophet or the Sadiq. Um, you know, these are people that, that really are living uh, very much as B'nai They just don't know about it because what has happened is they have, not been told about it or what they have been told is that just like you heard that the seven laws were a way to keep non-Jews from keeping the 613 and, and that's not the case um, let me finish when I'll, I'll explain to Azriella before I answer your question Andy um, all I can tell you Azriella is that in this process uh, it became very evident about three four years before I actually started to convert and I converted here in Israel through the Jerusalem Beit Din uh, I knew uh, eventually I was going to convert it was like a magnet turned on inside of me it cost me everything it cost me my marriage it cost me my career it cost me contact with my family it cost me uh, it cost me everything in life I had to empty myself I mean having lived or tried to live like a Jew for seven years um, I thought I, you know, when I entered the conversion program, I mean, I thought I knew certain things. And what I discovered very quickly is a lot of what I thought I knew was not right. And the hardest part of all of conversion um, was the emptying out of myself, letting go of everything I thought I knew so that I could be retaught properly, that I could start over like a baby. But I will tell you that no matter what happened, and, and because I was uh, a leader in these Ephraimite groups, there was a lot of opposition to my conversion. Some people within the, the group actually tried to stop my conversion uh, through certain means. So it was very difficult. 
But all through it, no matter how difficult it got, I knew I couldn't stop. There was a magnet inside my soul that would not stop, no matter how much pain, no matter how much it cost, no matter how difficult it was, no matter how much my integrity was questioned or had to be tested. It wouldn't stop. That magnet stopped the day that I got out of the mikvah when I was actually a new person, when I got my new neshama and I became a Jew. Then the magnet stopped. And for me, anyone within these Lost Tribe movements who feel that they might be um, descended from the Lost Tribes of Israel or part of the Jewish people, one time or another, there is going to be a day that they realize that if they want to join their people, they must convert. And they will realize that they have some choices to make in terms of what they believe. It's funny, having become a Jew has enabled me to actually counsel people against converting more than ever, more than you can imagine. I am, you know, if someone should, a person will know if they should convert. But there is a romance with Torah, a romance with Judaism, that people come into it and they, th they think because they love the Torah and they want to, to keep the Torah and they love Israel that they should convert. And what they don't realize is that as B'nai Noach they can keep, they can live an almost parallel life. Becoming a Jew, to truly become a Jew, you have to take upon yourself, as we said in today's class, the 613 commandments of the written Torah. Mind you, there's some that you know we can't keep, but we have to say we accept the full of the written Torah, the full of the oral Torah, and all of the halachot that the rabbis have put in place as gezerimus fences to protect us from breaking the commandments. It's not easy. It's easier to become a Jew than it is to live as a Jew. And I say that with pride at being a Jew and with, with absolute love for my life as a Jew. But you can't just wake up some days and say, gee, I don't feel like it today. There are responsibilities every day. In order to be Hashem's witnesses, you have to live a very disciplined life. For someone to convert and not understand that they stand before God in a bait din of rabbinical judges and make a vow to keep the written Torah, the oral Torah, and all of the halachot, to, to do that and then to go back on that, Rabbi El Schwartz says they damage their neshama. And it's, it's a serious thing, and they don't realize it. They don't know that they can live a life that's parallel in Torah by beginning with the seven and seeing just how many other commandments are actually included in it. So it's, uh, you know, it, it's something serious. If someone comes to me or is referred to me to ask about conversion, and I, I think they're not there yet, Usually what I tell them to do is to go and buy a really good book on Shabbat Halachot and to sit down with their family, if they've got family or a husband or a wife, and to read it, to study it, and to sincerely ask themselves if they can sincerely commit to keeping all of these prohibitions and commandments with joy. If they can, let's talk. But most of the people come back to me and say, I had no idea. That isn't what I thought being a Jew was. So it's a matter of understanding. Okay, we are over time, but are there any final questions? 
it's nice to have uh, have the exchange going here. Uh, Andy's got another one coming in. I will. S <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, please just let me reiterate. Um, these literally hundreds of thousands of people that are out there in the Aphrodite Yosephite movements, ten Israel movements, are sincere people. They are being given some teaching that is a little, <laughs> in some ways, a lot off base. And it's simply because their teachers don't know. And so, you know, with sincere intentions, they're making some huge errors. And because I was there once, and there's no mistake in Hebrew, we say lomikre, it converts, if you move the letters around, it's rachmi Hashem. It means uh, only from Hashem. And, you know, Hashem brought me through that movement for a purpose. They, the, their teachers are called rabbis, but they're not rabbis that study in an orthodox yeshiva for 10 years to get smicha. Uh, they're rabbis that usually were pastors in the past or, uh, you know, are given a one-year program of reading and, and they get ordination within a year. It, it's very difficult. Are very, you know, it just, just doesn't compare. And so, you know, but what I want to say is these are, are wonderful people who sincerely want to follow the Torah. They really and truly, some of them should convert. I think Hashem is using it to, to help people, filter people out, but also to help them to come face to face with the seven universal laws. Um, I think that perhaps many of the people in those movements desperately need uh, to know about the universal Torah laws. I think they would be happiest as B'nai Noach. There are other ones that I really believe that Hashem is bringing step by step to the point where they will realize uh, that the root of their soul is probably Jewish and they need to convert. It's if, if That's the only way to come home. Until Mashiach is here, there's only one way to come home. And that's through Orthodox conversion, Orthodox mikvah. And there can be no idolatry. There can be no dualities. It has to be one God, one God only. And unless they can commit to that, then they damage, they, they endanger their own neshama if they convert. Okay, great class today. I love the uh, the interchange. Andy and William, uh, it was nice to have you in the class. And hopefully we'll see you again next week, uh, same time, 10 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Azrael, I don't know what time that is in France. I think maybe it might be, what, 4 in the afternoon, something like that. And uh, the class will be on spiritual pride and spiritual mixtures. The Legacy of Yerobam. There's only two more classes uh, before the end of the series, and then I will be uh, going to North America for a month uh, to do some speaking and to see my family for the first time in three years, see my daughter. So two more classes. I hope that you can make them, and then, God willing, we'll be back again in the fall. Okay, uh, so long, everyone. Wonderful class. Shalom, shalom from Yerushalayim.